Chapter 33 of That Affair Next Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you today by Dawn Larson in Minnesota. That Affair Next Door by Anna K. Green. Chapter 33 Known, Known, All Known. Mr. Grice possesses one faculty for which I envy him and that is his skill in the management of people. He had not been in Miss Althorpe's house five minutes before he had won her confidence and had everything he wished at his command. I had to talk some time before getting so far, but he, a word and a look, did it. Miss Oliver, for whom I hesitated to inquire, lest I should again find her gone or in a worse condition than when I left, was in reality better and as we went upstairs I allowed myself to hope that the questions which had so troubled us would soon be answered and the mystery ended. But Mr. Grice evidently knew better, for when we reached her door he turned and said, Our task will not be an easy one. Go in first and attract her attention so that I can enter unobserved. I wish to study her before addressing her, but mind, no words about the murder. Leave that to me. I nodded, feeling that I was falling back into my own place, and, knocking softly, entered the room. A maid was sitting with her. Seeing me, she rose and advanced, saying, Miss Oliver is sleeping. Then I will relieve you, I returned, beckoning Mr. Grice to come in. The girl left us, and we too contemplated the sick woman silently. Presently I saw Mr. Grice shake his head, but he did not tell me what he meant by it. Following the direction of his finger, I sat down in a chair at the head of the bed. He took his station at the side of it in a large armchair he saw there. As he did so, I saw how fatherly and kindly he really looked, and wondered if he was in the habit of so preparing himself to meet the eye of all the suspected criminals he encountered. The thought made me glance again her way. She lay like a statue, and her face, naturally round, but now thinned out and hollow, looked up from the pillow in pitiful quiet, the long lashes accentuating the dark places under her eyes. A sad face, the saddest I ever saw, and one of the most haunting. He seemed to find it so also, for his expression of benevolent interest deepened with every passing moment, till suddenly she stirred. Then he gave me a warning glance, and stooping, took her by the wrist and pulled out his watch. She was deceived by the action, opening her eyes, surveying him languidly for a moment, then heaving a great sigh, turned aside her head. Don't tell me I am better, doctor. I do not want to live. The plaintive tone, the refined accent, seemed to astonish him. Laying down her hand, he answered gently, I do not like to hear that from such young lips but it assures me that I was correct in my first surmise, that it is not medicine you need, but a friend. And I can be that friend if you will but allow me. Moved, encouraged for an instant, she turned her head from side to side, probably to see if they were alone, and, not observing me, answered softly, You are very good, very thoughtful, doctor, but, and here her despair returned again, it is useless, you can do nothing for me. You think so, remonstrated the old detective, but you do not know me, child. 
Let me show you that I can be of benefit to you. And he drew from his pocket a little package, which he opened before her astonished eyes. Yesterday in your delirium you left these rings in an office downtown. As they are valuable, I have brought them back to you. Wasn't I right, my child? No, no, she started up, and her accents betrayed terror and anguish. I do not want them. I cannot bear to see them. They do not belong to me. They belong to them. To them? Whom do you mean by them? queried Mr. Grice insinuatingly. The, the Van Burnhams. Is not that the name? Oh, do not make me talk. I am so weak. Only take the rings back. I will, child, I will. Mr. Grice's voice was more than fatherly now. It was tender, really and sincerely tender. I will take them back, but to which of the brothers shall I return them? To, he hesitated softly, to Franklin or to Howard? I expected to hear her respond. His manner was so gentle and apparently sincere. But, though feverish and on the verge of wildness, she had still some command over herself, and after giving him a look, the intensity of which called out a corresponding expression on his face, she faltered out, I, I don't care, I don't know either of the gentlemen, but to the one you call Howard, I think. The pause which followed was filled by the tap-tap of Mr. Grice's finger on his knee. That is the one who is in custody, he observed at last. The other, that is Franklin, has gone scot-free thus far, I hear. No answer from her close-shut lips. He waited. Still no answer. If you do not know either of these gentlemen, he insinuated at last, how did you come to leave the rings at their office? I knew their names. I inquired my way. It is all a dream now. Please do not ask me questions. Oh, doctor, do you not see? I cannot bear it. He smiled. I never could smile like that under any circumstances, and softly patted her hand. I see it makes you suffer, he acknowledged but I must make you suffer in order to do you any good. If you will tell me all you know about these rings, she passionately turned her head away, I might hope to restore you to health and happiness. You know with what they are associated, she made a slight motion, and that they are an invaluable clue to the murder of Mrs. Van Burnham, another motion. How then, my child, did you come to have them? Her head, which was rolling to and fro on the pillow, stopped and she gasped rather than uttered, I was there. He knew this, yet it was terrible to hear it from her lips. She was so young and had such an air of purity and innocence. But more heart-rendering yet was the groan with which she burst forth in another moment, as if impelled by conscience to unburden herself from some overwhelming load. I took them. I could not help it. But I did not keep them. You know that I did not keep them. I am no thief, doctor. Whatever I am, I am no thief. Yes, yes, I see that. But why take them, child? What were you doing in that house, and whom were you with? She threw up her arms and made no reply. Will you not tell? he urged. A short silence, then a low, No! evidently wrung from her by the deepest anguish. Mr. Grice heaved a sigh. The struggle was likely to be a more serious one than he had anticipated. 
"'Miss Oliver,' said he, "'more facts are known in relation to this affair than you imagine. "'Though unsuspected at first, "'it has secretly been proven that the man "'who accompanied the woman into the house "'where the crime took place was Franklin Van Burnham. "'A low gasp from the bed, and that was all. "'You know this to be correct, don't you, Miss Oliver?' "'Oh, must you ask?' "'She was writhing now, and I thought he must desist out of pure compassion. But detectives are made out of very stern stuff, and though he looked sorry, he went inexorably on. Justice and a sincere desire to help you force me, my child. Were you not the woman who entered Mr. Van Burnham's house at midnight with this man? I entered the house. At midnight? Yes. And with this man? Silence. You do not speak, Miss Oliver. Again silence. It was Franklin who was with you at the Hotel D. She uttered a cry. And it was Franklin who connived at your change of clothing there, and advised or allowed you to dress yourself in a new suit from Altman's. Oh, she cried again. Then why should it not have been he who accompanied you to the Chinaman's and afterwards took you in a second hack to the house in Gramercy Park. Known, known, all known, was her moan. Sin and crime cannot long remain hidden in this world, Miss Oliver. The police are acquainted with all your movements from the moment you left the Hotel D. That is why I have compassion on you. I wish to save you from the consequences of a crime you saw committed, but in which you took no hand. Oh, she exclaimed, in one involuntary burst, as she half rose to her knees, if you could save me from appearing in the matter at all, if you would let me run away. But Mr. Grice was not the man to give her hope on any such score. Impossible, Miss Oliver. You are the only person who can witness for the guilty. If I should let you go, the police would not. Then why not tell at once whose hands drew the hat-pin from your hat, and— Stop! she shrieked. Stop! You kill me! I cannot bear it! If you bring that moment back to my mind, I shall go mad! I feel the horror of it rising in me now. Be still, I pray you, for God's sake, to be still! This was mortal anguish. There was no acting in this. Even he was startled by the emotion he had raised and sat for a moment without speaking. Then the necessity of providing against all further mistakes by fixing the guilt where it belonged drove him on again, and he said, Like many another woman before you, you are trying to shield a guilty man at your own expense. But it is useless, Miss Oliver. The truth always comes to light. Be advised, then, and make a confidant of one who understands you better than you think but she would not listen to this. No one understands me. I do not understand myself. I only know that I shall make a confidant of no one that I shall never speak. And turning from him, she buried her head in the bedclothes. To most men, her tone and the action which accompanied it would have been final. But Mr. Grice possessed great patience. Waiting for just a moment till she seemed more composed, he murmured gently, not if you must suffer more from your silence than from speaking. Not if men, I do not mean myself, child, 
for I am your friend, will think that you are to blame for the death of the woman whom you saw fall under a cruel stab and whose rings you have? I, her horror was unmistakable, so were her surprise, her terror, and her shame. But she added nothing to the word she had uttered, and he was forced to say again, The world, and by that I mean both good people and bad, will believe all this. He will let them believe all this. Men have not the devotion of women. Alas, alas! It was a murmur rather than a cry. And she trembled so the bed shook visibly under her. But she made no response to the entreaty in his look and gesture, and he was compelled to draw back unsatisfied. When a few heavy minutes had passed, he spoke again, this time in a tone of sadness. Few men are worth such sacrifices, Miss Oliver, and a criminal never. But a woman is not moved by that thought. She should be moved by this, however. If either of these brothers is to blame in this matter, consideration for the guiltless one should lead you to mention the name of the guilty. But even this did not visibly affect her. I shall mention no names, said she. A sign will answer. I shall make no sign. Then Howard must go to his trial? A gasp, but no words. And Franklin proceed on his way undisturbed? She tried not to answer, but the words would come. Pray God, I may never see such a struggle again. That is as God wills. I can do nothing in the matter. And she sank back crushed and well-nigh insensible. Mr. Grice made no further effort to influence her. End of chapter 33 Chapter 34 Exactly half-past three she is more unfortunate than wicked, was Mr. Grice's comment, as we stepped into the hall. Nevertheless, watch her closely, for she is in just the mood to do herself a mischief. In an hour, or at the most two, I shall have a woman here to help you. You can stay till then? All night, if you say so. That you must settle with Miss Althorpe. As soon as Miss Oliver is up, I shall have a little scheme to propose by means of which I hope to arrive at the truth of this affair. I must know which of these two men she is shielding. Then you think she did not kill Mrs. Van Burnham herself? I think the whole matter one of the most puzzling mysteries that has ever come to the notice of the New York police. We are sure that the murdered woman was Mrs. Van Burnham, that this girl was present at her death, and that she availed herself of the opportunity afforded by that death to make the exchange of clothing which has given such a complicated twist to the whole affair. But beyond these facts we know little more than that it was Franklin Van Burnham who took her to the Gramercy Park house, and Howard who was seen in the same vicinity some two or four hours later. But on which of these two to fix the responsibility of Mrs. Van Burnham's death is the question. She had a hand in it herself, I persisted, though it may have been without evil intent. No man ever carried that thing through without feminine help. To this opinion I shall stick, much as this girl draws upon my sympathies. I shall not try to persuade you to the contrary, but the point is to find out how much help and to whom it was given.
and your scheme for doing this? Cannot be carried out till she is on her feet again. So cure her, Miss Butterworth, cure her. When she can go downstairs, Ebenezer Grice will be on the scene to test his little scheme. I promised to do what I could, and when he was gone I set diligently to work to soothe the child, as he had called her, and get her in trim for the delicate meal which had been sent up. And whether it was owing to a change in my own feelings, or whether the talk with Mr. Grice had so unnerved her that any womanly ministration was welcome, she responded much more readily to my efforts than ever before, and in a little while lay in so calm and grateful a mood that I was actually sorry to see the nurse when she came. Hoping that something might spring from an interview with Miss Althorpe, whereby my departure from the house might be delayed, I descended to the library and was fortunate enough to find the mistress of the house there. She was sorting invitations and looked anxious and worried. You see me in a difficulty, Miss Butterworth. I had relied on Miss Oliver to oversee this work, as well as to assist me in a great many other details, and I don't know of anyone whom I can get on short notice to take her place. My own engagements are many, and... Let me help you, I put in, with that cheerfulness her presence invariably inspires. I have nothing pressing calling me at home, and for once in my life I should like to take an active part in wedding festivities. It would make me feel quite young again. But, she began, Oh, I hasten to say, you think I would be more of a hindrance to you than a help, that I would do the work perhaps, but in my own way rather than in yours. Well, that would doubtless have been true of me a month since, but I have learned a great deal in the last few weeks. You will not ask me how. And now I stand ready to do your work in your way, and to take a great deal of pleasure in it, too. Ah, Miss Butterworth, she exclaimed with a burst of genuine feeling, which I would not have lost for the world. I always knew that you had a kind heart, and I am going to accept your offer in the same spirit in which it is made. So that was settled, and with it the possibility of my spending another night in this house. At ten o'clock I stole away from the library, and the delightful company of Mr. Stone, who had insisted upon sharing my labors, and went up to Miss Oliver's room. I met the nurse at the door. You want to see her? said she. She's asleep, but does not rest very easily. I don't think I ever saw so pitiful a case. She moans continually, but not with physical pain. Yet she seems to have courage, too. For now and then she starts up with a loud cry. Listen. I did so, and this is what I heard. I do not want to live. Doctor, I do not want to live. Why do you try to make me better? That is what she is saying all the time. Sad, isn't it? I acknowledged it to be so, but at the same time wondered if the girl were not right in wishing for death as a relief from her troubles. Early the next morning I inquired at her door again. Miss Oliver was better. Her fever had left her, and she wore a more natural look than at any time since I had seen her. But it was not an untroubled one, and it was with difficulty I met her eyes when she asked if they were coming for her that day, and if she could see Miss Althorpe before she left. 
As she was not yet able to leave her bed, I could easily answer her first question, but I knew too little of Mr. Grice's intentions to be able to reply to the second. But I was easy with this suffering woman, very easy, more easy than I ever supposed I could be with anyone so intimately associated with a crime. She seemed to accept my explanations as readily as she already had my presence, and I was struck again with surprise as I considered that my name had never aroused in her the least emotion. Miss Althorpe has been so good to me I should like to thank her. From my despairing heart I should like to thank her. She said to me as I stood by her side before leaving. Do you know, she went on, catching me by the dress as I was turning away, what kind of a man she is going to marry? She has such a loving heart, and marriage is such a fearful risk. Fearful, I repeated. Is it not fearful? to give one's whole soul to a man and be met by i must not talk of it i must not think of it but is he a good man does he love miss althorpe will she be happy i have no right to ask perhaps but my gratitude towards her is such that i wish her every joy and pleasure miss althorpe has chosen well i rejoined mr stone is a man in ten thousand the sigh that answered me went to my heart I will pray for her, she murmured. That will be something to live for. I did not know what reply to make to this. Everything which this girl said and did was so unexpected and so convincing in its sincerity that I felt moved by her even against my better judgment. I pitied her, and yet I dared not urge her on to speak, lest I should fail in my task of making her well. I therefore confined myself to a few haphazard expressions of sympathy and encouragement, and left her in the hands of the nurse. The next day Mr. Grice called. "'Your patient is better,' said he. "'Much better,' was my cheerful reply. "'This afternoon she will be able to leave the house.' "'Very good. Have her down at half-past three, and I will be in front with the carriage.' "'I dread it,' I cried. "'But I will have her there.' "'You are beginning to like her, Miss Butterworth.' take care. You will lose your head if your sympathies become engaged. It sits pretty firmly on my shoulders yet, I retorted, and as for sympathies you are full of them yourself. I saw how you looked at her yesterday. Bah! My looks! You cannot deceive me, Mr. Grice. You are as sorry for the girl as you can be, and so am I too. By the way, I do not think I should speak of her as a girl. For something she said yesterday, I am convinced she is a married woman, and that her husband... Well, madam, I will not give him a name, at least not before your scheme has been carried out. Are you ready for the undertaking? I will be this afternoon. At half-past three she is to leave the house. Not a minute before, and not a minute later. Remember. End of chapter 34